On this episode of A New York Minute in History, we explore slavery in New York. And specifically, the resistance to that institution, including the Underground Railroad. It was really a far, far cry from walking off into the sunset. It was very dangerous. It was very risky for everybody involved. And yet our folks, you know, both freedom seeker and abolitionists, stood up to that system and said, nope, we're going to do something different. (laughs) When it came to resistance, it was a very personal thing. Join us as we explore what slavery looked like in New York and those that stood against it. Support for this program comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps people celebrating their community's history by providing grants for historic roadside markers and plaques. You've probably heard about our New York State Historic Marker Grant Program, but did you know we also offer several other marker grant programs? Here in the Empire State and across the country, these programs include commemorating women's suffrage, historic canals, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. Our grants are available to local, state, and federal government entities, nonprofit academic institutions, and 501c3 organizations. Since 2006, we've funded nearly 1,000 signs across all our programs nationwide. To apply for a marker at no cost to you, or to learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. Welcome to a New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. On this episode, we are going to discuss slavery in New York and the resistance to that institution. But first, let's focus on the African slave trade and its impact beyond America's borders. Between uh, the 1500 and the 1900, uh, Many scholars had argued uh, that uh, the population of Africa remained uh, stagnant or even declined um, uh, to that extent. Um, Africa um, was the only continent to be affected by this way um, with population. Slavery affected Africans in in, in several ways. Dr. David Agum is a lecturer in the Department of Africana Studies at the University at Albany. We spoke with him about the impacts of slavery on the African continent. In terms of uh, the the horror of the period, we can look at uh, three uh, broad ways: um, the destruction of uh, human lives, you know, the morally uh, moral destruction of human lives, um, where many lives were lost, and things like that. Then the um, the destruction of um, human possibilities, you know, um, in terms of uh, the 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 potential. Um, for development. So the destruction of human cultures, villages were raised down, um, cities were raised down, towns were raised down. So uh, I've highlighted three things, the destruction of human life, the destruction of human cultures, the destruction of uh, human possibilities uh, and in terms of uh, the all important uh, aspect of the fact of uh, what could have been in terms of the people's aspirations, uh, the destruction of aspirations. Um, enslavement of Africans had an impact on the continent uh, in very much several ways. Um, so we, we talk about the idea of the population of the continent in terms of uh, 
the loss of human lives, which also caused societal uh, disruptions in the society, you know, um, and uh, sometimes in certain cases, forced transfer of population mm -hmm. because they are captured on the continent and then taken to the Americas, you know, or taken to Europe. Uh, and, and so we see that, you know. Um, uh, secondly, the, 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 the horror of enslavement uh, caused the, the loss of youth because any nation, no nation can develop without its youth, mm -hmm. uh, which is where you get the skilled manpower from. Uh, and so we and so this uh, ended up affecting the, the development of Africa, both uh, scientifically, technologically, and uh, even uh, culturally. And some scholars like Walter Rodney will argue that it led to uh, um, an instance of uh, arrested development, if you want to call it that way. Mm -hmm. The enslavement of Africans also um, impacted uh, Africa um, economically, uh, the economic activity. Um, it destroyed industries on the continent. It destroyed markets and industries, you know. Um, but it also grafted African economies and um, subordinated them to to, uh, to the commerce and violence of enslavement. Um, and, and so much so that um, you have uh, many uh, areas of economic activity were kind of unattended, um, left in those terms, you know. So we, the, the, so Africa ends up entering into this whole idea of uh, dependence, um, this, which is uh, part of where we are today. You know, um, we move from a production uh, economy to one which is now very much dependent. Dr. Agum argues that slavery in Africa differed from what it would become in distant European colonies. In one of my discussions, I highlighted, for example. Uh, the works of Olauda Equiano, uh, who had seen the boat of both worlds. He was kidnapped from Africa, from the Nigeria. He ends up first in uh, Barbados and eventually to Virginia and then back to the UK. And, and, and so he describes that experience um, in his uh, work, uh, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olauda Equiano. And he captures this. And he talks about uh, that experience. He said, you know, there were... It is very true that Africans were engaged in some level of uh, servitude on the continent, you know, and that's what it was, for lack of a better term. Um, and uh, but it was different. It was different because it it involved um, it. Uh, they were much more like prisoners of war. As a matter of fact, uh, Basil Davison highlights that. He says uh, that was uh, the the African system of slavery uh, referred more to. Uh, servitude uh, in ways where people were uh, captured um, uh, mostly as uh, prisoners of wars or uh, sometimes as punishment for crimes they've committed in society and things like that, you know. Um, but there was always, always the possibility uh, that those uh, Africans regained their freedom. Um, uh, some of them uh, got married into the society where they were supposed to be enslaved and things like that. Olada Equiano tells us, and, uh, and I suspected this before reading Equiano, and he mentions very clearly um, uh, the fact that, uh, yes, there was, even in the society, they were enslaved, but he says, the next day he says, they were prisoners, they were pretty much like prisoners of war, and so on. So the African system was quite different. Um, it always uh, provided the opportunity uh, for people to advance in those societies, you know. Olada Equiano says in comparing both systems, because he, he had experienced uh, both worlds, he said in the African system of enslavement, uh, the enslaved were treated like family, you know. Mm -hmm. 
which uh, attests to the fact that uh, uh, the African system was not a permanent condition, you know. Uh, and, and so he longed, he said, he, he, he not, but by the time he leaves the shores of the continent, he says, you know, um, it occurred to him that he was never going to go back, he was never going to see back, go back home again, mm-hmm. as was the case in the society, you know. And in exchange, of course, uh, he describes this very well in the, uh, for example, in the market system, um, where, um, of course, uh, the European traders brought other goods. They enticed African leaders, um, some of them got arms, you know, uh, got arms in exchange for uh, enslaved uh, people. That is also very, very important. And uh, you would argue, one would argue, um, why do you need arms? Uh, you do need arms because uh, uh, Europeans uh, or the European enslavers um, exploited the political uh, vulnerability of Africans, you know. And so they created the uh, factionalism and, and things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they supplied arms. Yes, everybody needed, you, in order to survive in those intra-ethnic uh, conflicts, you needed arms to survive. Mm-hmm. And so, but that was how in the first place, that was how you ended up getting prisoners of war, you know, in those conflicts. Yeah, as Dr. Agum illustrates, there was resistance to slavery by the people of Africa. Africans... Uh, resisted in, uh, in in several ways. Well, there were, of course, those Africans who went into alliance uh, because they, for some Africans, th- that alliance was meant to be a survival uh, tactic for them, uh, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, Africans were engaged in uh, revolts um, against the system. Uh, the organizer, of course, it was an unequal system. Uh, in the long run, um, the, the resistance was... Uh, was very strong, but uh, you know, the the due to the superior firepower mm. of the enslavers, um, they, they they couldn't quite. Um, in certain places, it, it the, the resistance failed, you know. Mm. But there were real real cases of resistance of Africans who organized against uh, that institution. They resisted. They led revolts. They led mutinies in order to put a stop to this um, uh, system. But uh, it it was uh, it, it was difficult. So the the exchange was unequal, and uh, it was difficult for them to have uh, succeeded in those terms. So since this is a podcast about New York history, what did slavery look like in our region? To answer that, I sat down with Dr. Oscar Williams. He's the chair of UAlbany's Department of Africana Studies. Slavery in New York uh, fundamentally started in 1624, when I believe the Dutch West India Company came here, uh, mainly in the Hudson Valley, and uh, established what was known as the patroon system. Uh, With the patroon system, that was simply where a patroon or, frankly, landowner of course, was able to uh, have as much land as possible. That also extended into having enslaved people as well, too. When it was first established, uh, I believe there were 12 that were allotted to each patroon. Over time, though, it was changed to as many as possible. So as a result, the 
well-established, of course, were able to take advantage of the patroon system. And that would come to particularly the Van Rensselaer family, uh, who, of course, came here, uh, settled in the uh, Hudson Valley, uh, and also established uh, their own patroonship, uh, which was known as Rensselaerwick. Rensselaerwick uh, extended into several modern-day counties like uh, Columbia County, Saratoga, uh, also uh, extending, of course, into Rensselaer County, uh, going all the way to the state line of Massachusetts and Vermont. Dr. Williams argues that the Dutch system of slavery in North America was not as restrictive or expansive as it would later become under the British. Slavery, uh, primarily under the Dutch here, uh, was basically limited to primarily manors and also in the cities as well, too. Now, interestingly, in New York City, uh, they had a system which would later be known as, I believe, the uh, half-freedom system, where essentially they had so many enslaved Africans, uh, they said, well, let's allow them to live on land that we own, uh, let them grow their own crops, uh, and then when we need them, we'll call them in and uh, they'll do whatever job we, we want them to do. But in terms of treatment, uh, I would argue that it was no different than what you found elsewhere. In fact, when you take a look at slavery in the North, they simply looked at what the South was doing. And then on top of that, the South looked at what slavery in the Caribbean was doing. So everybody was sort of looking at one another to see how they were handling their enslaved population. Although I would argue that the Dutch treatment fundamentally wasn't any more different than what other European countries were doing, the British did have their own particular approach, and it tended to be very aggressive, uh, very um, ironclad. And when you started to see the British take over in New York, uh, not surprisingly, that's when you started to see more stricter draconian-type laws directed toward people of African descent. You know, probably the earliest would have been a set of laws known as Duke's Laws, which uh, essentially cracked down on the mobility of uh, enslaved Africans. And as slavery expanded in North America, so did resistance. The thing we have to understand about slavery is that it was always accompanied by violence, whether organized or individual. So people were going to react in a very natural way. That is, they were going to either resist individually, what's also commonly known as day-to-day -day resistance, or they were going to have organized resistance, which, would, of course, would uh, result in running uh, in uh, rebellions. Now, the most common form of resistance, frankly, was just either slowing down work or sabotage, uh, usually of um, equipment or even livestock or sabotage of food. Um, and then aside from that, running away. Running away probably would have been the most common form of 
resistance. Uh, and typically, most enslaved people ran away because they were looking for loved ones or simply they didn't want to be punished or they just simply said, I've had enough of this work, you know, let me get away. So there were various forms of resistance that always existed during slavery. And it's not really surprising that in places like the South, you had the formation of militias, you had particularly military academies established uh, because one of the biggest fears that they had was that there would always be the threat of a slave rebellion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having places like Virginia Military Institute, which I actually graduated from, mm -hmm. uh, also the Citadel mm -hmm. uh, and other military academies, it was part of the training to make sure that if there was the possibility of a rebellion, then you would have a ready uh, citizen soldier uh, at hand to put down any type of trouble. Mm -hmm. And ironically, uh, we take a look at West Point, uh, which we see as you know a national military academy. But during that time period in slavery, it was per se a Southern institution because the majority of cadets were from the South. And West Point would have offered the best form of military strategy and education. In fact, case in point, the superintendent of West Point, Robert E. Lee. One of the most interesting parts of my conversation with Dr. Williams was his explanation of how culture was used as a form of resistance against slavery, creating a sense of identity and community among the enslaved. Really, when it came to resistance, it was a very personal thing. So, of course, you would have... Um, things such as religious or spiritual thoughts, uh, which would be converted to what they believed or what they may have learned or kept over from the Middle Passage. Uh, like, for example, religion. Not surprisingly, most enslaved Africans were taught what was known as the so-called master's religion, in which it was about honor thy master, thy mistress. You know, the Bible, of course, would be twisted so that uh, they were made to believe that their destiny was to work for their owner or master or slaveholder until they died. And through that, they would be able to go into the gates of heaven. But uh, the enslaved African in, re in response essentially took parts of the Bible and then interpreted them to their own lives, to their own struggle. Most classic example, of course, would be the story of Moses, where he led the Israelites out of Egypt. And so very easily they would uh, see Moses as the, you know, liberator. And then obviously the Pharaoh would be the slave uh, master. And then, of course, they saw it as a prophetic sign that slavery would end one day. Mm -hmm. So so definitely cultural resistance was uh, alive and well during uh, slavery. So religion, uh, what, what are some other ways that um, cultural uh, resistance played uh, a role? Well, food, for example. You know, I teach this to my class, and it tends to be a bit of an interesting subject because, of course, it brings up the subject of so-called soul food or what we now know as uh, Southern cuisine. Uh, and when you take a look at that, 
it came out of slavery in which enslaved people were given not the best food at all. Uh, you know, they were given basically uh, offal, entrails, if you will. So as a result, they had to take those scraps and then turn them into something palatable. Uh, the most classic example, of course, would be what people commonly call chitlins. Um, also, continuing on with the theme of food, barbecue. You know, now mm -hmm. these days we just take barbecue as just an American food, and it is. At the same time, it did come out of slavery. I mean, even though it can be argued that every culture has had some form of barbecue, but particularly here in this country, it came out of a situation where, once again, enslaved Africans were given you know, the worst sections, the toughest meat, what have you. So they had to make it palatable. So they had to give it some flavor, make it tender enough to eat. And keep in mind that enslaved Africans were also feeding everybody else on the plantation. So the uh, so-called slave ma uh, master and his family tasted it and they said, oh, this is pretty good. Mm -hmm. So not surprisingly after that, um, it, I don't think it's an accident, even after slavery, barbecue became sort of a um, domain that African-Americans were supposedly uh, good at. But now, of course, everybody barbecues. So it's, mm. you know, uh, an American uh, cuisine. Let's talk a little bit more about resistance and culture. Um, so we mentioned religion, or you mm -hmm. mentioned religion and food. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What role did, did music, did mm -hmm. uh, festivals, celebrations, mm -hmm. traditional uh, things like that, what role did that play for the enslaved mm -hmm. uh, when they were here? Well, case in point, let's take a look at uh, what was known as Pinkster. Pinkster, of course, was uh, a festival which, depending on who you talk to, actually came from the Dutch, but then enslaved Africans... Um, used it uh, as their own form of expression. Uh, I know here in Albany, usually what they would do is they would have a day set aside where they were allowed to come downtown. Uh, they were allowed to intermingle. Uh, they would also elect uh, an elder who was usually king for, for a day. Now, interestingly, that ended in 1811, uh, when I believe the Albany Common Council called for the end of the festival. Mm -hmm. And I believe that came from particularly fears they had about a rebellion that occurred in Louisiana mm -hmm. earlier that year, uh, known as the German uh, Coast Revolt. Uh, but if you take a look at enslaved Africans, they were always allowed to express themselves musically. Mm -hmm. So as a result, the music also took on a form of protest. For case in point, Frederick Douglass, in his um, narrative, talked about the songs that he heard. And one particular song he heard, if I remember correctly, was, uh, you know, they take the corn, they give us the husk, uh, and that's the way they take us in. Mm. So, and it was a very shrewd form of musical expression and protest because typically with most slaveholders, they didn't care whether their slaves sang or not. They just wanted the work done. 
So as a result, the enslaved would say, okay, well, we're going to take this music and we're going to actually say this rather than what you think we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and classic example, of course, would be um, Steal Away, you know, a classic spiritual. You know, they were saying Steal Away, Steal Away, Steal Away to Jesus, Steal Away, Steal Away Home, I Ain't Got Long to Stay Here. Now, at the same time, they used that as a code for those who were actually running away and when they would hear it, they would say, okay, the coast is clear. You can mm. make a break for it. Mm. So, yeah, there, uh, there was clearly resistance mm. in the music of the enslaved African. And obviously you were mentioning about jazz. Mm -hmm. You know, that appeared in jazz, particularly when you hear songs sung, uh, let's say, by a person like uh, Bessie Smith. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, the blues. Mm talking about how bad you're treating me or what have you. Uh, and then, of course, we can extend that into rap mm -hmm. uh, or hip-hop today, where uh, clearly you hear songs of resistance in that. Mm -hmm. um, then also, of course, there's call and response, mm -hmm. which was definitely uh, of uh, African origin, which has always appeared in African-based music from then to now. One of the most notable forms of public resistance to slavery in the state took place in 1712 in New York City, then under British control. You had a, a group of enslaved Africans, uh, primarily Angolans, who took it upon themselves to set fire to some warehouses in lower Manhattan. Uh, and when people came out to uh, put out the fires, they were attacked. Uh, their eventual plan was to uh, escape uh, north of what we now know as Wall Street. Uh, but they had a militia come out, uh, and essentially the um, group was cornered. Uh, as a result, I believe some of the leaders uh, committed suicide on the spot. Uh, as for the rest, they were either executed, then also um either uh, sent out of the uh, colony, usually sent to the, to the South. Uh, and the effect that had on New York uh, would last into 1741 when you had suspicion of another revolt. Uh, and once again, it seemed very similar to what was happening in 1712. Uh, that is, you had warehouses that were being set on fire. Uh, and keep in mind, this is during an era where Fire could devastate a city, you know, just completely wipe it out. Uh, so as a result, suspicion, once again, was raised against uh, people of African descent. Uh, so as a result, there were aggressive interrogations. And uh, a, um indentured servant by the name of Mary Burden confessed, if you will, uh, that her boss, who was a tavern owner, John Hewson, I believe, had this wild plan to make himself king of New York by having enslaved Africans and some free blacks set fire to the city and then have this widespread rebellion. So as a result, you had what was known as the Panic of 1741. Uh, as a result, you had uh, really something almost similar to what happened with the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, that is, you had just widespread panic, suspicion, uh, which resulted in these trials, 
uh, if you want to call it that. Uh, and what it did result in were uh, gruesome executions. Um, many uh, enslaved Africans were burned at the stake. Some were sent out of uh, New York uh, to the South, uh, but you had these uh, very uh, gruesome uh, executions uh, that, that were carried out. And typically, Africans, uh, whether enslaved or free in the city, were forced to watch these particular executions. In fact, that was uh, a practice that had always existed in slavery. That is, to prevent people from rebelling, make them watch the execution of their fellow slave, uh, enslaved people. So, yeah. Sounds like the, the panic, there was no basis for... Yeah, the panic was just really just a result of these wild stories that were told by Mary Burden. And ironically, it was later discovered that Mary Burton was lying. Mm -hmm. So to save face, the uh, officials of New York uh, essentially said, well, thank you for your service. Now please leave. Although the colonists launched the American Revolution on the ideals of freedom and equality, when they defeated the British, the clearly unequal system of slavery remained. Now, after the Revolutionary War in New York, there was a movement of manumission where you started to see enslaved Africans uh, so-called freed under these uh, manumission uh, documents. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, what New York realized was that they could not compete with a rapidly growing South that was embracing slavery. I mean, because after the so-called Revolutionary War, um, you had particularly the opening up of lands uh, in what we now know as the Deep South, mm -hmm. where slavery could accelerate. Also, you had the introduction of cotton uh, in the South, uh, which really made slavery into a totally different animal. Uh, but getting back to New York, you did have start to see gradual manumission. Now, that did not mean a complete release from slavery because in 1799, you had a law that was established by the New York uh, state legislature, which basically said, okay, uh, we will so-called manumit or free these slaves, but for a male, we won't free you until age 25, for a woman, we won't free until age 28. Until then, you still belong to your master. And any children that you have, yeah, we're going to give them to your master uh, until they reach that particular age. So uh, New York had a very interesting and shrewd gradual manumission. In fact, really, it was just nothing more than just a way to extend slavery. But eventually, over time, you did start to see the actual manumission uh, or ending of slavery, at least on paper. So finally, July 4th, 1827, the New York State Legislature, of course, formally ends slavery. But even after that, you still see two things. Number one, um, some people are actually listed on the census as slaves. Uh, and also, number two, you see Southerners come to New York with their 
slaves. Mm. Uh, in fact, Saratoga, for example, Saratoga Springs was a very popular destination for um, slaveholders from the South to come and enjoy, you know, the, the, the waters, if you will. But they would also bring uh, enslaved Africans as well, too. Mm. I mean, essentially, you had, after 1827, really the growth of the Underground Railroad. Mm. Uh, and New York was one of the main uh, states for that. Uh, also, of course, you had uh, people like Frederick Douglass mm. also make New York uh, a center state for this uh, abolitionist activity. Okay, But, of course, there were exceptions to that. The most obvious exception would have been Solomon Norfolk, mm. you know, 12 Years a Slave, where he was from Saratoga Springs and unfortunately was kidnapped by some unscrupulous people uh, and then sold into slavery. So even though you did have slavery, quote, end on paper, that did not mean the threat of slavery had ended. So when an enslaved person would run away from uh, somewhere in New York, would they most often go to Canada? Would that be the destination? or? Um, well, Canada doesn't become a destination until 1833 when they themselves under Great Britain, eliminate the system of slavery. Um, so that's when you start to see that Underground Railroad connection uh, start to uh, accelerate. Uh, aside from that, most enslaved Africans um, in New York State, I would argue, probably tried to escape to urban areas, you know, or at least intermingle themselves within uh, New York. Um, now, past the Hudson Valley, um, really, you don't see, at least as far as I can see, too many escapes there uh, until, once again, the antebellum period, where really you start to see the acceleration on the Underground Railroad. In fact, um, the Underground Railroad is this traditional Underground Railroad that we have all learned about, usually championed by Harriet Tubman. Right, she's the face of it, um, and it is the process of freedom seekers, enslaved African Americans, who flee, run away, or take boats, or find ways to escape bondage in the South. They use networks to get to cities, get to other communities, and in some cases, ultimately end up in Canada or down in the Caribbean. So outside, they border cross um, state or national lines for protection to flee from slavery. What I have coined and created is a term, the Above Ground Railroad. That's Dr. Jennifer Thompson Burns. She's a lecturer at UAlbany's Department of Africana Studies. A native of Troy, New York, she has researched how the capital region resisted slavery in the 19th century. Thompson Burns starts by defining that term she mentioned, the Above Ground Railroad. And this is focused on the movement of information and free blacks to fight for civil rights, and fight against slavery. So being that they were not enslaved, they were operating with their own rights as the focus. It was not simply on, you know, helping an individual get free or quasi-free. It was really about creating um, an equity 
and a division, we'll say, in society, a space where migration and travel and communication by free blacks is an actual component of how you protest and how you design a protest movement. And Trojans really relied on that when it came to newspapers and it came to traveling to conventions or having people come to their conventions. And in between, with just lecturers and the black newspaper agents coming to the city. So that system of communication and travel that was very visible, they wanted it to be public. It was in the newspapers. Um, People were constantly moving in and out is really one of the mechanisms they use as a strategy to fight for civil rights and abolition. So the Above Ground Railroad becomes a good sphere, an actual identifiable space and strategy that black Trojans relied on. As Dr. Williams noted, culture, and specifically religion, played a role in how enslaved people created their own identities as a form of resistance. Dr. Thompson Burns says that was the case for free African Americans in Troy as well. One of the first moves that took place was right after um, state emancipation in 1827, there was a schism of black um, Methodists who left the white Methodist church and established a black Methodist church, which turned over a couple of times. It added a separate division. Um, It became an AME and then an AME Zion. So there's a lot of movement in the Methodist church in Troy. So that actually happened before Liberty Street Church was founded. The second thing that happened relatively within a couple of years was that within the Presbyterian church, which was interracial at the time, blacks left that church to found the Negro schoolhouse which was a building donated by the Presbyterian Church. That was in 1833. Within four or five years, there was a lot of infighting, I think really amongst more the city council, about making this church, this separate space, an identified denomination, which the black Trojans really resisted. It was more of a civic center and a schoolhouse. They ended up deciding to make that Liberty Street Presbyterian Church. So really from 1830 on, they had these two separate spaces that were the churches, and Liberty Street gained in prominence. But that was also because it started as this schoolhouse where people of all ages were actually attending. Um, and there were a lot of records about that. But both of all of this action, black Trojans submitted to what was first Freedman's Journal, the first black newspaper that was founded during this period. And then after that, other um, white newspapers in the area, the Albany Angus, the Albany Patriot, and then also um, the Colored American when that became popular. And Stephen Meyer's newspaper was one of them that they were contributing to. A quick interjection here for our listeners. Keep the name Stephen Meyer's in mind. We'll learn more about him later in the episode. Nice forward promotion, Devin. Well, beyond publishing black newspapers, one of the most public ways abolitionists expressed themselves was at conventions. So overall, the general convention movement really began, it was birthed in um, Philadelphia. And initially for the first few years, started in 1830 and 1831, that I I couldn't find any black Trojans that attended the first two years. Um, But in 1833, They did. And what I found, which was very interesting, was when they met in Philadelphia, it was a cohort of the, you know, upper echelon of African-Americans from Philadelphia and also New York City and other big cities. What made it more interesting for me in the Troy Connection goes back to how they stayed. They used the black newspaper, Freedman's Journal, 
to access the boarding house, but sort of like a hotel experience. And so I found cards of thank you. So outside of the convention where they were meeting to do democratic business, we'll say, they then stayed with each other based on the advertisements that were in Friedman's Journal at different people's homes. Um, And that was something that continued in every one of the cities at the time of conventions. So you built a more intimate network and a stronger network that gave people an opportunity to meet face-to-face, not just read about someone in the paper, but then also know who directly to go to in different communities in between the convention movement. And that allowed them to coordinate their efforts before they met annually. And then what comes out of that are these state conventions. Mm -hmm. So you have a big national convention of free African-Americans from across the country. And then you have these state conventions where each group is kind of focusing on the, the specific issues they're facing in the state. So in New York, as they were introducing immediate emancipation, so in the decade prior to that, from 1817 to 1827, African-Americans lost the right to equal suffrage, mm. right? A, a color-based qualifier, freehold of $250 um, was put in place. So this altered the politics of abolition for African-Americans in New York State because they couldn't participate equally mm. with other people in New York State. But in states like Massachusetts, they had equal suffrage. So the state conventions then help to define the different issue, issues that people are dealing with, but also to explain how people prioritized what they were, uh, what their activism was about. So African uh, Trojans then get heavily involved in organizing state conventions in New York, and they were participants in either organizing or holding the black New York state conventions from the 1840s all the way through the Civil War, and they continued them after the Civil War um, for civil rights, equal suffrage, um, and things like that. And then below that, you had specific um, unions or statewide associations that black Trojans participated in. So you had these tiers that were local-specific, state-specific, and then rose to the, con- the national conventions, where people were always coordinating the larger domestic affairs on the national level, but then their specific ideas and things that they were troubled with within their state, and then it came down to their county and their locality. Um, So the conventions built that network and people moving for national things, but then also coordinating within the state, and you could still connect with someone, say that you stayed with or met in a national convention in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. when you held a convention or a state convention, a national or a state convention. And Trojans held the 1847. They hosted the 1847 National Convention. So not only did they hold three or four of the New York State conventions in Troy, Mm -hmm. but they they were one of the very few cities who held a national convention. And they were the smallest in black population size to hold a national convention. Through her research, Dr. Thompson Burns argues Troy had an outsized role in the abolitionist movement when compared to larger urban areas. Troy was unique. It was unique in the sense that it was a smaller population. You're looking at Philadelphia and Boston, the big cities, um, D.C., they have, you know, upwards of 10, 20, 30,000 African-Americans. In Troy, before the Civil War, they never get over 1,000. So it's a very small community. But through the years, you know, sometimes when it's three or four or 500 people, because of the growing racism that is taking place and because slavery had phased out in certain ways, 
many of the people in the community knew each other directly. It's not like in a big populated city where you don't know people. Um, and I think that was a strength for sure that they were a little smaller. And then as people migrate into the city, they're usually following people that they know. And so it built a, a strong camaraderie. Um, the other thing is there was some tremendous white support and they were prominent and wealthy white Trojans. So that gave some additional um, prowess, we'll say. They're close enough to the legislature where they could actively get to Albany and they worked with people, black people in Albany constantly, but go to the state capitol mm -hmm. and protest themselves. Mm -hmm. And just having the same leadership mm -hmm. throughout these decades. Um, and some of the younger generation began to marry prominent people mm -hmm. in black families in Philadelphia. Um, and New York, so that it strengthened that connection without people necessarily having to move mm -hmm. right into a city and expand mm -hmm. the population. Um, and the other thing is, being on the Erie Canal mm -hmm. was a tremendous boost. Um, Harriet Tubman, who had she had come to the city, but part of her extended family had passed through Troy on the Underground Railroad, had gone on to Canada, and then come back and settled in Troy. Mm. So Troy had this. Um, unique nature that would, you know, draw fugitive slaves that were in safety outside the country back. Um, and so I think, you know, those things in particular were what gave it a little bit of an edge, and it was definitely different from the larger black communities. Stephen Myers, who is really central to the story related to the Stephen and Harriet Myers residence, a man born enslaved in New York State, was given his legal freedom about 1818. We say about because we've actually we've seen scholarly references to this uh, date, but we've not seen the hard documents. So as Devin promised, here's where Stephen Myers comes into play. Exactly. Mary Liz Stewart, who you just heard, and her husband Paul, gave us a tour of the Myers residence in Albany. It's a 19th century home being rehabbed as part of the Underground Railroad History Project of the Capital Region. Here is Mary Liz to explain why Stephen Myers is important to our story. About 1818, Stephen Myers was given his legal freedom, very quickly rose to a position of prominence among Underground Railroad activists in the Capital Region. And as he did that, though, we also find that uh, he, that he was engaged in uh, the American Council of Colored Laborers, a precursor to today's unions. Um, he sued the city school district of Albany because it was um, only allowing white children into classrooms in the public schools, uh, schools. He was involved in the New York State Suffrage Association, you know, attempting to uh, lobby le legislators in New York State to obtain the voting rights for black men. Um, so he was involved in an economic development effort in central New York State uh, called the Florence Farming and Lumber Association. So, so this is a you know this is just one person obviously, but it's it's his story for whom we have the most concrete details. So we offer these examples um, as ways to understand that our black abolitionists were doing more than just sitting around waiting for freedom seekers to come through the door. And while they're doing all these things, they're working full time. You know, Stephen Myers has a variety of jobs. Many times we find that his job situations put him in managerial positions within the hospitality business. While the Stewarts are rehabbing the Myers residence which is on the National Register of Historic Places, they have opened it as a museum that tells the story of the Underground Railroad and abolitionist efforts in New York's capital region. 
Paul pointed out one of the most important items they have. The flyer is a handbill that was passed out by the Vigilance Committee of the Underground Railroad around 1856, uh, 1857. Uh, and it says on it that there was a meeting held presumably at the 198 Lumber Street, which was where the headquarters for the Vigilance Committee was. And the Vigilance Committee was a group of citizens that came together to provide food, clothing, shelter, and advocacy help for those who were fleeing enslavement. So uh, the, the freedom seekers, uh, people who are the passengers on the Underground Railroad. So uh, the, the flyer says that there was a meeting at 198 Lumber Street. It talks about some resolutions that were passed at that meeting. It provides some names of who was involved with the resolutions, and then uh, it makes a pitch for funds and for support. Uh, and it sort of, you, you can also get a sense of what the work of the Vigilance Committee was by the information that's printed there. So, um, and that's why I, I talk about the food, clothing, shelter, and advocacy help, because that's implied in the document there. And the other thing about the document is there are a bunch of names on it. You know, people who were actually involved in that, presumably in that meeting, and who were involved in the Underground Railroad. So that does some things. One thing is it flies in the face of the idea of the Underground Railroad was all secret, therefore you can't know anything about it. Uh, it uh, flies in the face of the only people that are relevant to be talked about is Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, uh, because there's maybe about 12, 13 names that are identified on the flyer. Uh, and, of course, one of them is Stephen Myers. And it also provides us with lots of information about what was actually happening with the Underground Railroad, you know, on specific dates, a uh, group of people who came through the region, um, how much money the committee spent, uh, what kind of resources they need to get together in order to help those people. This is almost to the level of, of shocking when we think about the way we've always heard about and been taught about the Underground Railroad, kind of in popular culture. This is key. And frankly, part of the reason we do this podcast, to teach ourselves as historians and our listeners what we might not have learned in our history classes or textbooks. We assumed that as abolitionists that their first task would be to strategize on how to abolish the institution of slavery and what kind of strategies they would engage in to do that. Then, of course, there was the understandable uh, issue of how to meet the needs of freedom seekers coming into town and coming through the front door of the Myers residence. So certainly those would be at the top of their agendas. But as we continued our research, what also emerged were documents that identified the fact that these abolitionists were also dealing with issues of equity, uh, housing, voting rights, health care, jobs, education. You know, it's very similar to what we still talk about today. And yet these issues were very much part and parcel of their activism. So for black abolitionists, we find that they are not just concerned about this institution of slavery and its abolition and meeting the needs of freedom seekers, but they recognize the the need for addressing issues of equity across the board. I guess... My first question would be, uh, freedom seekers themselves, was there much advance notice for the Myers or their, their group mm -hmm. that these people were coming, or did they literally just sometimes show up and suddenly you had to fly into action mm -hmm. and find them a place to stay mm -hmm. and food and all of these? My understanding was that it was both. Yeah, yeah, Did you a mixed bag. Yeah, because yeah, in some cases... <laughs> There are uh, instances where people like, uh, you know, William Still might write ahead uh, to, some, you know, say these people are coming. Um, 
But in, in many cases, uh, they, they didn't. It was just a matter of this is the regular course of things and people are going to show up. Directions would be given, sometimes letters of reference would be carried uh, so that it was clear that the person approaching our abolitionists here in Albany was, was the real deal and not somebody looking for a free handout and, or working on behalf of uh, slave catchers. Um, and, uh, you know, the free handout thing, too, I feel just a need to, to qualify that because the abolitionists were not averse to helping other people, but they were also very stretched in terms of their resources, so they needed to be sure that their resources were, were being uh, uh, used in a proper manner. So hence the, uh, you know, the need for validation that someone approaching them really was yeah. uh, a, person in need, a, pers a freedom seeker in need, and so those letters of reference would certainly be very helpful. So there was, so, so as Paul said, sometimes there would be communication uh, in the form of, of letters, you know, coming this way, but other times, yes, you know, a knock at the door, and there you go, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. time to respond. During our tour, Mary Liz pointed out what some of our listeners might be wondering about the Myers residence. Many times people will visit the Stephen and Harriet Myers residence and they will ask, oh, where are the hiding spaces? You know, did people hide in the basement? Did they hide in the attic? And our response is no. All accounts that we have, all historically recorded accounts that we have engaged with have made no references to people hiding, but rather people being welcomed into the front door as guests welcomed into the front parlor to be interviewed for whatever needs and circumstances uh, needed to be addressed, welcomed at the dining table, which in the case of the design of this house would have been in what we would call a basement today, um, and if there was need for overnight temporary overnight accommodations, there was enough space in this 10-room house to be able to accommodate that sort of thing. So it, it's, again, it, it, you know, we try to push the issue that there's much more to the story than, than we usually hear. Yeah, and another, another element of the story, I think, which is important for people to, to, to have in mind, is that this 10-room house was not owned by Stephen and Harriet Myers. They were tenants here. The building was actually owned by John Johnson, who is Harriet's brother. So Stephen's brother-in-law, Harriet's brother. Uh, and John Johnson was an African-American boat captain uh, that operated one or possibly two sloops on the Hudson River uh, and uh, did shipping between New York City and Albany uh, and up and down the Hudson River mm -hmm. and, and apparently was doing well for himself in a particular period of time. And so that's where this building came from. John Johnson bought this lot in the early 1840s and by the late 1840s we find the tax maps are showing a building on the, on the lot. So, so we usually attribute the building to being built around 1847. And another feature about this building, too, again, as a way to say that there's more to the story, is that there, in public memory, there is usually some reference or a reference to or acknowledgement of the fact that, yes, there were free people of color before the Civil War, but oftentimes that's equated with being poor. And so we like to say, let's look at this building. Let's look at the uh, chattel mortgages, which are loan documents that, of which we have copies. Let's look at the artifacts that have you know, emerged from the ground around this building uh, that are period appropriate, that tell us more about the circumstances of the people who lived here, of uh, John Johnson, who owned the building. Uh, again, to say that uh, you know, there were clearly people of color who were of sufficient means to be able to build a house like this. Uh, in 1847, John Johnson was paying $2,000 in taxes on this building, which for a city of Albany building is 
is a significant a price tag today. And um, the other thing is that, as well, the features in this building reflect very much the features one finds in the lumber baron homes, lumber barons, white, wealthy, businessmen. And so many of the features that exist in those homes, many of which are still privately owned today, are also visible here within this building. So clearly John Johnson making a statement, but also um, building a, a building a, a building a home of that, that paid tribute to uh, you know, the contributions that he was able to make, but also African Americans in general, to the building of New yeah. York State. On one of the upper floors of the Myers residence, we took a look at a binder containing the Liberty Minstrel Song Collection. The 300 songs that are part of this collection, uh, yes, they, um, they are secular in nature, and so these particular songs we have found a very, very rich complement to our understanding of Underground Railroad history. And the one example I can draw on, I don't read music, so I draw on a song that I recognize, which was when I was growing up, a very patriotic song that I had to learn as part of my classroom instruction was um, the song America, my country, my country tis of thee, mm -hmm. sweet land of liberty for thee I sing, etc. And it goes on, very patriotic in nature. Well, the abolitionists took that song, they kept the melody so that people would be able to sing the song, but they changed the lyrics. Mm -hmm. So we end up with my country, tis of thee, dark land of slavery for thee I weep, land where the slave has cried, where he has toiled and died to serve a tyrant's pride for thee I weep. And it goes on from there. Mm -hmm. So this, this body of music was uh, certainly it's very, very poignant and certainly very useful in terms of reaching out to people during this time, during the antebellum time period, to both educate them about what was really going on with this institution of slavery in our country, but also it becomes an opportunity to touch people's emotions and draw them in, and it's particularly meaningful for people who are drawn to music and may not want to listen to a three-hour lecture, but they will, you know, they will participate in songs. And these song lyrics would show up in newspapers, they would be sung at uh, rallies and meetings and sometimes even in churches, so, so they had a very prominent place. And in fact, there was a a uh, family, the Hutchinsons, though not New York-based, they were a family, a uh, sister and three brothers, I believe, who took this music to the stage nationally. But we do have a local Albany resident who was very, very instrumental in retaining these songs. His name was George Washington Clark. He lived here in the city of Albany, New York. He was an, um, a musician in his own right, mm. and he very wonderfully gathered this music and had it bound so that we were able to engage with it, you know, contemporary times. So pretty exciting piece. Yeah. And in his music also, if I can say, was also something that pushed us in the direction of thinking about the Underground Railroad as a movement, mm -hmm. that it wasn't just this good, you know, this do-gooder sort of thing that was going on, but it really was a movement and had features of a movement. So there were people who... Um, there was a body of song, as just described with you know, the Liberty Minstrel music, but there were people who believed that um, abolishing the institution of slavery through the political system uh, was was the way to go, and so we end up with what the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party, the Republican Party of the day. But then we had other people who believed that um, pen to paper or verbal, uh, you know, verbal presentations were the way to go. So use of the word, either written or spoken word, was was the best way to go to help people understand what was going on and to change their minds and bring them into the cause. Um, some people, like most notably John Brown, who's a pop 
popular figure, but if we look at the history, we've got Denmark Vesey, Gabriel Prosser, Nat Turner, who preceded John Brown, who were of the same mindset that this aggressive response to abolishing this institution was essential and it needed to happen yesterday. Um, so you, you know, so so there are these various features that that uh, were are part and parcel of this underground railroad business. And so with that in mind, we've come to say it really was the first civil rights or human rights movement in this country, and it really is a movement. And clearly, the element of, of resistance, of civil disobedience, very much you know, was embedded in everything when, uh, that was going on. When Steve or, Stephen and or Harriet opened that front door to welcome freedom seekers into the Myers residence, they were breaking state and federal laws. So from the word go, they were engaging in civil disobedience, as were their colleagues. So we've been mostly speaking about Stephen Myers and his role in the abolition movement. What about Harriet Myers? We know she was born free. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from her obituary that she died in 1865 here in Albany quite suddenly. Uh, I believe she was coming home from the market, as I recall. Um, However, the obituary was uh, very glowingly reported that she was... um, She was a very active community member. She she was up on all the politics of the day, and she was very strong in what they call practical abolition, Mm -hmm. which is really providing hospitality to freedom freedom seekers, Mm -hmm. supporting their journeys. And And we also do have a letter from Harriet Myers, which has also been a window into her work. Um, It's in her. It's a copy uh, that the original is actually at the John Jay Homestead in Katona, down the Hudson Valley, and this particular letter, of which we have a copy. Um, she relays to us uh, her thanks to the Jay family for their support, financial support over the years, and for their support of directing freedom seekers to the Myers home. And she also goes on to mention that Stephen Myers happens to not be home at the occasion when she's writing this letter because he's up at Lake George uh, working as a butler at a very prominent hotel in Lake George. So therefore, she's the one who's on the front lines to welcome the freedom seekers in that have been sent by, in this case, William William John Jai. And she relates how, you know, she's the one who had to interview them and then, of course, determine based on their needs where she was going to go to get the resources to meet their needs. And and so she really puts herself out there as the person on the front lines, which I find intriguing because so often the kind of behaviors she wrote about uh, engaging in herself in this letter are so often the kinds of behaviors that are attributed unspokenly but attributed to men. She additionally makes the comment, now this letter was written in 1860, so 1860 New York institution of slavery has been abolished for over 30 years. We have, uh, you know, we're, we're verging towards the Civil War and yet what she writes as she concludes her letter is that again expresses thanks to the support of the Jay family because the oppression against our people grows stronger every day. Yours for the oppressed, Harriet Myers. So mm-hmm. clearly it's for me that debunks so strongly that notion that goes with that standard retelling of underground railroad history that oh New York, a northern free state, as if you know, coming into New York meant walking off into the sunset when the reality was so dramatically different. Accounts of, of uh, slave catchers and apprehensions you know, in the capital district and the uh, federal laws that uh, uh, related to uh, allowing um, pursuit and apprehension to occur and the weighting of that justice scale on the side of the pro-slavery forces just it uh, among you know as well as other things it was really a far far cry from 
walking yeah. off into the sunset. It was very dangerous. It was very risky for everybody involved. And yet our folks, you know, both Freedom Seeker and abolitionists, stood up to that system and said, nope, we're going to do something different. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on A New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. Stay tuned to WAMCpodcasts.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes. A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. Our producer is WAMC's Jim Laboulis. Our intern is Alicia Bacon. Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. The program is also funded in part by Humanities New York with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks to Drs. David Agum, Jennifer Thompson Burns, and Oscar Williams of the University at Albany as well as Mary Liz and Paul Stewart of the Underground Railroad History Project of the Capital Region for their expertise and time. Until next time. Excelsior.